Um, now, did you know, according to research, this is science again, so you can't hate me. I, kinda, I use science to hide behind a lot of things. Did you know, in 2013, research found that, on average, men speak somewhere between two to 7,000 words every day. Uh, but the average woman speaks somewhere between 10 to 20,000 words every day. Uh, but th I think the most controversial bit is that only 700 words that we speak in any day, apparently only 700 words have any real value. Um, which means percentagely, uh, yeah, you said it Jane, I didn't say it. Now as a church we're in a teaching series uh, called 10 where we're looking at 10 rules for life. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And as a church, we have teaching from the Bible each week. And part of the big reasons for that is because we submit to the Bible as God's authoritative word for us in our lives. And the reason we do that, you might think, why? Uh, the reason we do that and we submit to the Bible rather than Harry Potter is for a number of reasons. Um, mainly among them is because Jesus submitted to the Bible. Jesus was God in human form. Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off. And so we think anyone who can do that ought to be listened to. And Jesus submitted to the Bible. He quoted the Ten Commandments. He restated the Ten Commandments for his day. And as a church, we've been going through them for the past, well, this is week number, this is commandment number nine. So we've been going through it for nine weeks, which means we've got how many weeks left, Amy? One, well done, you're paying attention. We've got one week left of the Ten Commandments. She always says she's not good at maths, but she is. <laughs> it's our anniversary today, so I feel like I'm allowed to pick on, I mean, honor her publicly. I think the applause is for Amy there. <laughs> now, these Ten Commandments were given to God's people, the family group that he chose in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And they, they were kind of like the house rules that he wanted his people to abide by. They're things that are universally good and universally true, but they're specifically instructions or coaching, pieces, pieces of coaching advice for his particular people. Um, we've seen in this series that we don't obey the rules in order to be loved by God. But actually, God in the Old Testament, he rescued his people out of Israel in slavery. And then he spoke to them and gave them some rules for living. So rescue always comes before rules. God forgives, removes our shame, and then says, and here's how to avoid getting into those, that same mess again. Live like this. So they're for Israel, but they're universally good um, for anyone, whether you're a believer in God or not. You would be a stupid human if you didn't obey them. It is good to rest regularly. It is good to respect life, to keep your promises, to cultivate contentment in your life. And today, we're looking at the fact that it is good to speak life to one another rather than death and destruction. The commandment we're looking at is the, is the ninth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. It says this, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, if there's, if there's any pattern we've established over the past few weeks, it's that whenever we, we see the commandment on the screen, we're like, okay, that sounds reasonable. It doesn't look like it's going to hurt me too much or apply to me too much. But then every week as we've sat under these commandments, we've realized just how much this is an issue for us. The truth is, lying and lies are everywhere in our society. There was a Telegraph headline that said that um, lies have become an acceptable part of British life. And the po a poll revealed that the average Briton, Briton, Brito N, yes, uh, tells up to 10 lies per week. 
And apparently 7% of all users of social media say that they have lied on Facebook or Twitter in order to make themselves sound more interesting. Which, to be honest, only tells me that 93% of people who took the survey lied. Because what is social media except an opportunity to lie about ourselves in public? Just putting it out there. Now, we know, though, as British people, that, that British people lie all the time. We call it politeness, but it's really just a lie. Uh, when a British person says, very interesting, what we mean is clearly nonsense. Or when a British person says, I'll bear that in mind, what they mean is, I've forgotten it already. <laughs> when a British person says, I hear what you're saying, what they really mean is, I wasn't listening, I was just waiting for my turn to speak. Or someone says, I'll start my diet tomorrow. We know they're just justifying the chocolate bar in their hand, <laughs> making themselves feel okay. Or when someone says to you, we really value your call and we'll be with you as soon as we can. What, we, what they mean is, we don't value your call enough to hire enough people to take your call, so we put you at the bottom of a queue. Or when the dentist says to you, this won't hurt, open wide. <laughs> Um, we live in an age of truth decay. I'm sorry. <laughs> we live in a world of fake news. that it used to be called propaganda, but now it's called news. Um, people bend the truth for their own gain. In the UK, the, last year, the benefit fraud was set at two, uh, £2 billion. Tax fraud cost us £6.9 billion, and £1.3 billion was spent in insurance fraud. In fact, yesterday on the news, I was watching the 10 o'clock news on a Saturday night, that's what I do. Um, on the news last night, they were talking about, again, income tax and fraud and claiming and avoiding tax. It's everywhere. And since it's Mother's Day today, I figured a lot of what we're going to say today needs to be applied to mums. I mean, it's no coincidence that we're talking about lying on Mother's Day because, as we know, every mum lives with people who lie all the time. And kids, because kids are immature, we often see their lies in, in the raw and immature form. They're not quite as sophisticated as you and me um, to, uh, lying. And so let me introduce you to Noah. I hope we'll see if our, our computer's back up. This is Noah, age three. Um, oh, here it comes. Batman did it. Batman did it. Batman did it. Now, the commandment that we've looked at is about lying, but more specific than that, actually. The commandment is about destroying someone's reputation, bearing false witness against your neighbor. And, um, and at this point, I want to show you another video because this only happened just a couple of days ago. I thought it was quite a mute. Oh, hello. Pause it a sec. I'll explain. There we go. Let me, uh, Amy, don't, don't worry. I'm not going to incriminate you. Um, but this was quite amusing. For the past couple of years now, I've asked the kids questions about their mum that we can then show her on Mother's Day. It's quite amusing. And our two-year-old reveals something about Amy that I think you'll agree is quite shocking. And I didn't ask her permission to share this, so this could go south. Let's watch. <laughs> So Amy likes to tidy when we're not around. We established that. Did you pick that up? What does mommy like to do when daddy's... Uh, when daddy's uh, kiss, 
Who would you like to kiss at work? I think Toby has broken the ninth commandment there, incriminating her mother, lying about her, destroying her reputation. Now, many people know the pain of being lied against and lied about. Uh, And I make light of it, but it's a very destructive way of uh, ruining someone's life. Uh, My dad was a teacher of 35 years, and I still remember the day he came home uh, and there was something going on. Him and mum were talking in hushed voices, and he was clearly stressed about something. And he said that a child at school had had, um, said that he pushed him uh, out of the classroom in anger. And this child had called the police on my dad, and the police were now starting to investigate. And my, I, this, I remember as a child seeing the, the, the fear on my dad's face as this was starting to unravel. Now, unfortunately, um, the child admitted to lying two days later. And so it was all fine. It never happened. But in that moment, I, I, started, I understood afresh, your words are powerful. And lying about someone has the potential not just to say something untrue about them, but to potentially destroy their life. This, we're living in an age of public shaming, and in an age where, rightly so, a lot of people are coming forward and, saying, and revealing historic things that they've kept secret. But in and amongst all the genuine, there's always going to be handfuls of people lying for the sake of publicity or fame or to destroy someone. In fact, in Eastbourne, there's a school that had its name changed because the founder of the school, someone had, lied, someone had said about them that he had um, been inappropriate and he was guilty of some gross misconduct. So they changed the name of the school, all the publicity with it. His name's been dragged through the mud. This individual's dead. Uh, and just in the last two months, it's been revealed that this, there's no truth in any of the claims about this person. He's been vindicated been vindicated, but he's not around to fight his cause. The school won't ch- hasn't changed its name back. It's the, the price that we pay for lying. And I know some of you in the room carry with and know the pain of what it is to have people say things about you that aren't true. For many people, it's enough to drive them to consider suicide. Like a single drop of sewage in even the largest magnum bottle of champagne, a lie against you can destroy your life. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've said that they're split into two. Top four, love God. Get them right, and you'll, you'll, you'll do the, the bottom six. But the top four, love God. The bottom six, love your neighbor. And it struck me as I was preparing this week that the love your neighbor um, six essentially all, all center in around the idea of theft. Don't steal someone's wife. Don't steal someone's life. Don't steal someone's stuff. Don't steal someone's reputation. And in the last one, don't covet, don't even desire to have what someone else has. Why is that? I think there's a recognition that if we grasp the significance, value, importance of other people in the world around us, then we will treat them properly, treat them with the respect that they have as image bearers of God, not just because they're evolved apes or as an advanced species, but because we, you and I, bear the image of God You have been set apart from the creation in that respect. Therefore, love God, and as a result of that, honor his image bearers in the world. I want us to consider the power of our words for a moment. And several weeks ago now, John talked about uh, commandment number three. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. In other words, you are an ambassador of God. Your words matter. What you say matters. With a word, we believe God created. 
The universe was not created as a chaotic place. God spoke order and life. Truth brings life and order, whereas lies corrupt and destroy. Jesus called our enemy, the enemy of the human race, the Satan, called him the father of lies, the one who brings destruction and chaos. Lies spoken against us or others wound or undermine us. Well, I think of the I think of the Roman emperors in the Colosseum who would have the power of life and death in their thumb and they could kill a man or they could spare a man. So it is with your words. The book of James says, in the tongue is the power of life and death. And the, the social psychologist Brené Brown, who's a shame researcher, she says this, the brain processes social rejection or shame in the same way that it processes physical pain. Words spoken against a person have the same effect on us as shaming does. Now, in 1872, um, the use of the stocks was banned in England. It was made illegal. But up until then, people were put in the stocks and had rotten fruit and veg or other things thrown at them as a way of publicly humiliating them. It was banned in 1872 because it was deemed to, be too, it was deemed to cause too much trauma for a person. Individuals would rather take their own life than be shamed in public in that way. In Ephesians 4, in the letter in the New Testament, verse 29, it says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. No corrupting talk. That word corrupting is a word that roughly translated means rotten. No rotten words spoken against the person. And we all agree that putting someone in the stocks and throwing rotten fruit and veg at them is wrong. But actually, throwing words at them when they're not looking, defaming someone, ruining their reputation, lying about someone, is the same as throwing bits of vegetable or fruit at a person. I missed. I'm sorry about that. I'm just going to keep going until I actually get a nice hit. Ollie, it's your fault. Oh, John, sorry. That's what you do when you speak unkindly against someone. You're throwing rotten words, rotten truth and veg, truth and veg, fruit and veg against them. We must be careful because our words are dangerous. Several years ago, I was a youth leader at the church in Eastbourne, and we came up with this game one week uh, where we had a line of balloons and we put shaving foam on all of the balloons. And then we gave 12-year-olds razor blades, and they um, had to shave the, the, um, the shaving foam off the balloons. Um, before long, the shaving foam fell off the balloons onto the floor and made the floor very slippery. And so we had 12-year-olds with razor blades falling around the floor trying to slash at these balloons. You wonder why I got fired. And they s sent me over to seafood. Thought, you can't be trusted with young people. <laughs> But in the spirit of trying to revive some, um, some youth games, I thought we'd, we'd play a game this morning together. So I need two unwilling volunteers. Um, we'll have two women, because it's Mother's Day. I've, as a parent, I've noticed that my, my kids have like an obsession for wasting things that are valuable. So we buy some shower gel, and they'll just empty the shower gel out in the bath or on the floor for fun. But the one that really gets me is toothpaste. I think almost all my jumpers, it happened today, Sarah said, you've got a bit of toothpaste on your jumper. I'm like, I know. Every item I wear has toothpaste on it. So now I want to give, the I want to give a chance to some mums to experience the joy and thrill of just emptying lots of toothpaste out of tubes for no other reason than it's fun. So... Um, can I have a volunteer mum who would like to experience? A Amy and Abby, well done. Come up the front here. Let's give them a round of applause. There we go. 
I did say unwilling volunteer. Um, oh, there we go. So there's, there's some toothpaste for you. When, not yet. What a waste, I know. But um, if we haven't, yeah. I just want you to experience what Toby feels like when he does that and maybe understand why he does that. So, stand opposite each other. You're going to empty the toothpaste onto the plates and the first person to get all of the toothpaste out of their tubes first wins. That's the game. But not yet. Wait for the klaxon. John, when you're ready. You can cheer for them as well. <laughs> go on, Amy, go. Does it feel good? Is it satisfying? Oh, that is coming out fast. I think, I think we have a winner. Stop the clock. Amy's the winner. Well done. Well done. That was very fast. It felt good. You can understand why Toby does that. Although seeing how quickly you did that, I'm starting to think maybe it isn't Toby that does it at home. Maybe it's you. Thank you, girls. You can sit back. Actually, no, wait. Part two of the challenge. Part two of the challenge is you need to now get the... No, I'm serious. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Um, part two of the challenge is you now need to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. You can't. No, okay, fine. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the point. Your words tumble out fast. And they feel good sometimes. The things that we say, the lies that we tell. But once they're out, you can't put them back in. It's like toothpaste out of a tube. You can't get it back in. That's why it matters. Gossiping or lying. Listening to something about someone else and delighting in it. It feels good. That's why kids love emptying toothpaste. But it, the damage it creates lasts like a single drop of sewage and champagne, or like a fly in a bowl of soup, or since it feels good, more like eating an extra chocolate bar or like a McDonald's dinner. It tastes good, but afterwards you just feel rotten. You feel sluggish. Not lying, avoiding telling lies, is hard work. Let's be honest. When I'm on my way home from work, and Amy calls me, and um, I can hear the kids in the background climbing up the walls and she says to me, are you nearly home? The temptation to tell her I'm a mile closer to home than I am is great because I know telling her, no, I haven't left yet. <laughs> I, you know, I got caught looking at cats playing pianos on YouTube and I'm just, I really enjoyed it. And so I'm now just having fun relaxing at work and watching YouTube videos. The temptation to tell her, oh, I'm nearly home is great. Well, the temptation when someone frustrates you or you've got an issue with someone, the temptation to go and talk to someone else. Can I just tell you about how annoying it is? Or can I just, can I just do you agree with me that what they're doing is wrong? That feels good. And the temptation to do that is strong. So avoiding that is hard. But how we use the truth affects the sort of person we are. One author says, taking the easy way out or telling the truth. Those are not merely two different choices. These are two different pathways through life. And they are two utterly different ways of existing. Do you tell the truth? Are you brutally honest, even when it will cost you something to be upfront? Now, the commandment, do not lie, is the electric fence that keeps us safe. But what the commandment is really advocating or driving us towards is this, the importance of speaking the truth. And Brené Brown again, um, perhaps for us as parents, but for all of us, it says something quite useful. 
Brene Brown, the social psychologist, she interviewed 12-year-olds who said this, not belonging at school is really hard, but it's nothing compared to what it feels like when you don't belong at home. Asked, she asked the students what that meant, and she said, they said, not living up to your parents' expectations hurts. Not being as cool or as popular as your parents want you to be. Not being as smart as your parents. Not being good at the same things your parents were good at. Your parents being embarrassed about you because you don't have enough friends. Your parents not liking who you are or what you do. And it, they said it hurts when your parents don't pay attention to your life. Now many of you know what it is to be that child growing up in that environment even now feel like you're fighting for some kind of respect or honor from your parents and to be honest a lot of what those young people said in that interview is true not just for for parents but in friendships in family in church in general it requires effort to not create cultures that cultivate shame or dishonor it creates effort instead to produce families, friendships, churches where life is spoken, where people are, know that they're accepted and valued. How do we do it? Well, one, one lady said that she noticed whenever, someone, whenever her kids walked into the room, her facial expression was always a little bit mean because she was always studying. Have they done their shoes up? Have they put their clothes on properly? Are their shirts buttoned up? And for a child entering the room, all they see is a scowling parent. So she says, the very first thing we can do is to tell our faces to communicate how we feel about the child, to communicate acceptance to them. Or as one other author says, we're all very good at catching our kids doing wrong. We need to work harder at catching them doing right. Catch them out, going, I caught you. That's a great thing that you're doing. <laughs> so, but for all of us, parents or otherwise, how do we do this? How do we speak life? And here's a little acronym that can help us. The acronym is THINK. First of all, ask yourself, before your words tumble out your mouth and you can't put them back in, is what you're about to say true? Is it accurate? Have you investigated the facts? Are you, are you compromised by your emotions in the moment? We've all known that. When you're frustrated and angry or you feel suspicious about someone, you don't speak the truth, you speak how you feel about the person. H, will it help what you're about to say? Will it help? Will it build them up? The Apostle Paul says God gives gifts to the church to strengthen, to edify one another. Is what you're about to say going to help someone? I, is it inspiring? Is it going to bring life to someone? N, is it necessary? Does it need to be said? Or is it something you just feel like you want to get off your chest? And lastly, is it kind? Think before you speak. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Another a national newspaper said that Britain has been rated as, as being the country that values the self over the group more than any other country. We're so fixated on our image, our performance, our reputation, our comfort, our happiness. That what that means is we don't often pursue encouraging others, speaking life to others, because we're worried what they'll think of us. Gossip, lying, makes you feel powerful. Genuine heartfelt encouragement makes you feel vulnerable. And we don't want to feel weak. We're scared. And so it's much easier not to say. It's much easier to be so worried about ourselves. In church, when someone says, let's go and pray for each other and encourage one another. And we think, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. 
The Apostle Paul says that God gives the gifts of the, of the prophetic prophecy to the church to comfort, to strengthen, to correct, to help build one another up. Speaking words to people in the Spirit of God brings life to people. The result of that difference, that it's easier and more powerful to lie than it, and it makes you vulnerable, the result of that is that we've created a, a society that is encouragement-starved. You know, I'm in a privileged position. I stand and speak in front of you regularly, and regularly, weekly, I'll, I'll have at least one person say, thanks for what you said, or they would encourage me in some way. Few people go, get that kind of encouragement in a year sometimes. And you can tell, because when you, when you deliver a timely piece of heartfelt encouragement to someone, you see the impact it has on them, as though they're the, no one's ever said this to them before. They're starved, like people are starved or malnourished for food. When you deliver life-giving words, it does bring life to them. Several months ago, I, I can't remember what Riley did, my oldest son, but I was in the kitchen, and I, I, just, I got down as ever. I looked him in the eyes, and I said, just some truthful, encouraging things about who he is and what I think of him. He burst into tears. It made him so happy to hear those words. The result of that, the result of what that creates in a family, in a church, is exciting to watch. And actually, just a few weeks ago, we had someone in our home who was really unwell in a very dark and difficult place in their life. And I'd spent a lot of time just sitting with them and trying to encourage them um, and Riley came in and walked into the room and sat on this person's knee and I said, so-and-so is really struggling. What do you want to say to them? And he looked him in the eye and he said, I love you. And they just burst into tears together. I thought, Riley, I've spent an hour trying to you know, bring him to tears with you know, kind words. But that's the culture that you create. It gets replicated. If you've been encouraged, encourage someone else. Pass it along. Plus, it's It'll also benefit you. Dale Carnegie, the author, says, you can make more friends in two months by being interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Look beyond yourself. Have the courage and intentionality to speak life or type life, text life to people. Offer them hope and a way through. Now, as a church, we, we talk about the kind of community we want to be. We have six core cultures as a church that we're trying to cultivate in the community. One of them is encouragement. We think that the good news message of Jesus, it, it enables us to produce encouragement and speak life to others. Because God, when we were sinful and far away, spoke life to us and forgave us and brought us near. Now, we as God's represent, representatives can do that to others. And so at the back and on your way out, you're going to get handed or you can take an encouragement card which has some challenges on the back to help you live out some of this in the next week. Encourage people. Well, I know as a church, many of you are very good at this. There's one person in particular who, again, on a, on a regular basis, I know that he sends voice notes to people in the church just telling them how much God loves them, what he thinks of them, and produces life in the church. So do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's just the electric fence that you're not allowed to pass. The actual playing field, the park, is speak life to one another. This is who you're supposed to be as God's people. And the way you can do it, the very fact that you're able to do it, is because of how our Savior and example and Lord and Master behaved towards us and when he was on the earth. Jesus spoke the truth to people 
even when it wasn't convenient for him to do so. Even though he knew speaking the truth would get him in trouble. He spoke the truth anyway. He knew it was going to be unpopular. He spoke the truth anyway. Jesus spoke life when death was all around him and criticism. Jesus spoke forgiveness and healing. The result of how Jesus behaved was that it didn't go well for him. They bore false witness against him. In a, in a kangaroo court, and a kangaroo trial, they stood Jesus up and they got people to say whatever they wanted them to say. They said, this man claims he's going to destroy that temple and rebuild it. This man's been saying blasphemous things against our God. They spoke lies against him. They destroyed his reputation. Which means a couple of things. It means Jesus can identify with you if you've, if you've been shamed publicly. There's a, a book you can buy on Amazon that's quite popular called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Because people are shamed on the internet every day often unfairly, without any nuance or consideration, just destroyed in public. What it means, the fact that Jesus was shamed and lied against means that you can identify, he can identify with you. He knows what it is to have people drag his good name and good reputation through the mud. It also means that Jesus comes to take that shame off you that you feel. He comes to bear it on your behalf. Because we've all spoken out of turn, unkindly, lied against others, lied against God. All of us need to hear this commandment. And when they lied against Jesus and eventually nailed him on the cross, how did he respond? He, respond by speaking, he responded by speaking life. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. As a church, we're going to come into a time of response together. We're going to enter that by breaking bread. And as we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was poured out for us, so that all of us could know life and forgiveness, where we should have known shame and condemnation, where we should have been cast out from God's presence. Jesus has brought us near. And so we break bread to do that. And we're going to use this confessional statement from the 16th century to help us. If I could have the band up, I'm going to pray and lead us into a time of response. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that you're a Father who loves us enough to to give us commandments on how to live well, to live healthily. Thank you that you love us enough that you take our shame off us and you speak life and wholeness to us. You say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And we respond this morning, Father, by breaking bread with our brothers and sisters in the church, by drinking this juice as an act of reminding ourselves you offered yourself to us so that we could be forgiven and have our shame removed. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the table in a moment, if you've repented of your sins, which means if you've acknowledged the fact that your life was astray from God and you've come back to God, then you're able to join us in this. This is something that's for believers if you're not yet a Christian or you're exploring, it's great to have you with us. You can enjoy and join us in the response, but the, the meal part of the morning is for those who would say they're Christians. We're going to use this as a way of responding and of preparing our hearts as we come to the table. Let's read aloud together if you're able. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness 
but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy. So feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may forever live in him and he in us. Amen. In your own time, you're welcome to make your way to the tables, two at the front, one at the back.